Good morning. How are you? How am I? Well, I'm doing pretty good. You guys like this weather? Where's Justice? You like this weather, Justice? <laughs> hey, uh, uh, not, not, I mean, a little farther north, they're having snow, they're having blizzards, man. So we got off easy, right? So um, we're going to look at a number of texts today. I want to continue our discussion that we started last week about hospitality. If you're in a life group, you've been studying the topic, and we uh, had a conference a while back, and we talked about the, uh, the other, the unknown, and reaching out to the unknown, even the unknown in our own lives, the unknown you might see every week at church, not just the unknown way out there. Um, and my title today is Hospitality, a Male Virtue. Or masculine virtue. What was the title I gave you? Something. Masculine virtue. Now, if, you, if any of you guys read the news, you keep on seeing this thing come, come up called toxic masculinity. Heard the phrase? Yeah. Right? So if you just Google masculinity, here's a definition. It says, a possession of qualities traditionally associated with men. Handsome, muscled, driven. And then my picture's there. <clears throat> um, <laughs> Toxic masculinity in boys fueling an epidemic of loneliness. Um, How masculinity is evolving. Here's a good one. Uh, Hold on. There's some good ones out here. Training the masculinity out of our children. Here's a good one. Masculinity is an anxiety disorder. Well, you know, most of the kids that are on uh, all, uh, mood-altering drugs are young men, are young boys, not young girls. So we're, we're drugging it out of them, we're training it out of them, because the assumption is that masculinity is a bad thing. You know, Aristotle said something very profound. I think it was Aristotle. He said something uh, very profound. He said, he that defines the terms wins the argument. Right? If you define masculinity as uh, unbridled aggressiveness, then of course it's toxic, right? So how do you define it? Well, who defines it? Do God defines it. Although God never gives us a definition of masculinity, he gives us pictures of it all throughout the Bible. Um, and one of the striking things as, as it relates to the topic of hospitality is that in Scripture... Hospitality is, is pictured as a male or a masculine virtue, which is very different than the way our society sees hospitality, right? We think of it as a female virtue, not a male virtue. It just shows one of the, one of the ways of, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we've drifted from a biblical worldview uh, on so many things. So my first point is that, is that, uh, we see the, the masculine aspect of hospitality in the very words that are used when we're exhorted to it. Go to Romans 12, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture today. Is that okay? Yeah. Is the Bible okay in this room? Yeah. All right, just to make sure. I don't feel like getting stoned this morning. Romans 12, let love be without hypocrisy. 12.9, I'm sorry. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. <clears throat> Be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love. In honor, 
giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and given to hospitality. As I pointed out before, the word here, uh, given, could be translated pursue. I think King James even says pursue hospitality. And, and uh, my version says given, yours may say something different. But the, the, root, the root word here is, is used in hunting. Now there's a masculine activity. How many men here like to go hunting, right? Yeah. So in other words, he, he, go hunting for hospitality. In other words, go hunting for people that you can bless. Go hunting for the other, the unknown, the stranger. One author says, we're here directed to not only practice hospitality, but according to the import of the original, meaning this original word, to follow or pursue it. Christians are to seek opportunities of thus manifesting love of their brethren and love of the other. In other words, take initiative. Now, I'm not a hunter. The, the big game I've killed is a squirrel. No horns, nothing to put on the wall. Although I did take the tail home, but I think I gave it to one of my kids. It was, it was, it was Lydia. Lydia was the one that liked animals and bugs and things like that. She got the tail. I don't know where it went. Anyway, that's my big game. That's my big, my big hunting expedition. Uh, my booty, as they say. No, not that. <laughs> Get the mind out of the gutter. You know, the prize for the hunt, the booty. Wow. I did not say what they thought I said. So hospitality is a, an initiative word. It's, in that sense, it's an aggressive word, but not a hostile word. You get the difference? You can be assertive and aggressive, but not hostile. Because what you're asserting is a good thing. What you're pursuing is a good thing, a positive thing. So take the initiative. Hospitality is not a passive virtue. We pray, we plan, we prepare for it, that we might practice it. I'll look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. As I said, we'll be jumping around. First Peter is right before Second Peter. Does that help? Nope. First Peter chapter four, verse nine. Y'all there? What does he say? He says, um, "Well, let's start in seven. He says, "But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another." Without grumbling. <laughs> Without grumbling. One author says this, he says, the connection between Christian love and hospitality is even more clear in 1 Peter 4 than Romans 12. Peter exhorts believers to keep fervent love for one another. The Greek, the Greek word for fervent conveys the idea of persistent effort, resolve, or exertion at full stretch or strength. Don't you like that? Masculine ideas. Strenuous. Labor. Stretching. Working. Thus there's no weakening of love. As, one, as Cranfield, one Bible commentator says, fervently perhaps gives the wrong nuance. For it might 
suggests that the emphasis is on warmth of emotion, whereas the Greek word it represents suggests rather the taut muscle of strenuous and sustained effort. As of an athlete, its root idea is stretching. Xenophon uses the verb to describe a horse at full gallop. So strenuous or persistent would probably be a better rendering here. It suggests a certain toughness of love, a love that endures. Isn't that good? So above all things have tough love. Above all things have um, strenuous love. Above all things have laborious love. All of those translations would actually work here. And then the, the example of that or the demonstration of that is be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You notice Peter says, without grumbling. Why? (laughs) Because if you practice hospitality, you know it's a lot of work. Uh, It it can be costly financially. It can be costly. you got to get the house ready. You you prepare the food. You do this. You do that. We like to have people over uh, just as in in general. But one of the great things about it is get your house cleaned. Right? (laughs) We're like, man, we need to clean the house. Who can we have over? That don't don't motivate you to get the house clean, right? So he said, Peter adds here, do it, but don't complain. Some people are really like Martha. They'll serve and serve and serve, but they let you know. They remind you they're serving because they're grumbling about it. You remember when Martha came to Jesus and complained, right? Mary wasn't doing her part. Alexander Strzok says this. He says, unquestionably, hospitality is hard work. It is costly and sometimes inconvenient. The pursuit of hospitality can easily generate into displeasure and murmuring. It is surely a concrete, down-to-earth test of fervent love. Love can be abstract, an indistinct idea. But hospitality is specific and tangible. Hospitality is love in deeds. And as I've said many times, it's easy to love humanity and not your neighbor. Right? It's easy to, to, to love in the general, but not in the specific, because the, the specific is marred and fallen and um, uh, problematic. The ideal is, well, it's ideal. That's why we like to dwell on the ideals. But love is not an abstract ideal. Love is action. And hospitality is, is one of the ways we show it. But in order to show it, We have to exercise. It's costly. Another striking thing in Scripture that shows the masculinity of of hospitality is that it's actually a a requirement for church leadership. A requirement for church leadership. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 1, y'all there? Paul says, This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a a bishop, mine says bishop, elder, would probably be as well, overseer, here's maybe one of those, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, meaning not addicted to it, not violent, uh, mine says, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One that rules well his own house, having his children in submission with all reverence. 
So hospitality here and in Titus chapter 1, where there's another list, a very similar list of elder requirements, we have this idea of hospitality. Um, And it's striking because it's not just suggested, it's actually required. If someone is going to be an elder in a church, what we call an elder, a pastor these days, they must demonstrate hospitality. It's a requirement. Um, now, we all know that in our, in our culture, it's usually the woman that has a social calendar, right? right? Hey, you guys want to get together? Yeah, talk to my wife. Right? That's what we do. But here, the burden is, is placed upon the man to, to hold this qualification of hospitality. In our culture, the, the, the common perception is that women are more uh, effective, meaning affectional or relational. Uh, men are simply not. <laughs> um, you, say, you say to a group of women, hey, let's get together. Like, okay. You say to a group of men, uh, to a group of men hey, let's get together. And like, what for? <laughs> In other words, there's got to be a reason. It can't just be <clears throat> to be together. It can't be just to, you know know one another and, and develop a relationship, that's not why we get together, right? We have to do something. Yet when we look in Scripture, we see that leading men in Scripture were always marked by this uh, um, trait of hospitality. Uh, go to Genesis 18. We'll look at a few examples in the Old Testament. We see the example of Abraham, the man of God, Abraham. In Genesis 18, Uh, Verse 1, it says, Then the Lord appeared to him, meaning Abraham, by the terebinth tree of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And Notice that he's sitting at the tent door, and and it's not just because of the heat. I'll explain more about that later. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground, and he said, my Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And after that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried, or the King James again says, he ran into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of meal knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender good calf, and gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So the image is somebody not just showing hospitality, but somebody that's eagerly showing, right? He's running, he's hurrying, he he, he greets them, uh, he's the first one to greet them. And then he offers hospitality, they don't require, he offers it, he initiates, and then he is eager to do it. He's running, he's hurrying to show them hospitality. Uh, look at uh, Genesis 19. We see this uh, similar example with Lot. By the way, Lot gets a bad rap. A lot of people think of Lot, like the heading of my Bible says, you know, backslidden Lot. Um, but when you read the New Testament, Lot's not criticized as a bad guy. That's a footnote. 19.1, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face 
toward the ground. So again, you know, he, he's, he's at the gate. Um, he's looking. He sees them. He, he initiates. He goes to them. He doesn't wait for them. He goes to them. And he said, here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. So he, he initiates by going to them. Then he invites them into his home. He just invited them in. They didn't ask. He initiated and invited them. Uh, they said, no, but we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned in to him and entered his house. And then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So, so he offers, he initiates hospitality. Then they decline. And so what does he do? He didn't say, okay. <laughs> he persists in his invitation and his, his outreach to them and, in, in, and exhorts them to come in and stay in his home so that he can give them a feast. And then they finally respond. Um, go to Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 2. We see a situation with, involving Moses. You know Moses' basic story, right? He, he kills uh, an Egyptian while he's to defend a, a Hebrew. Um, Pharaoh finds out he has to flee, so he has to go to the desert, right? Um, in verse 15 of chapter 2 of Exodus, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them. Here's masculinity in defense, right? In defending those who were uh, being attacked. Uh, he helped them and watered their flock. So he, def he uh, defends them, and then he serves them. Then they came to uh, Ruel their father, and he said, how is it that you have come so soon today? And he said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds and also drew enough water for us and watered our flock. So he said to his daughters, uh, where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. In other words, here's the father, the daughters, uh, you know, I'm sure they appreciated his help and all, but then they left him. They just left him there. And the father's like, well, what are you doing? You should invite him, you know. This is this hospitality coming again from the head of the home. There are many, many, many other examples that we could look at in Scripture where you see that the, the, the governing person in the situation, the leader, uh, is the one who is initiating hospitality and reaching out to others. Now, in our culture, we, we have... We have these lenses where we look at masculinity and femininity in such a way that the, the initiative for relationships is almost always put on the feminine, other than in what we call dating or courting. There, it's assumed the man should initiate to the woman, right? But once they're married, the woman's now the one who initiates outside the family to connect with other couples and other families. Whereas in Scripture, the picture is it's the man who's initiating hospitality. So we have this notion of the self-reliant, you know, the lone ranger male in our society, right? The tough, solitary, living on the range. You know, he's got his rifle and his, and his horse, and he's just out there by himself. He's a tough guy. 
And that's what men are. They're tough guys. And they just go it alone. And so this really is, is a myth of the you know, self-reliant individual male. And it, 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 is, it has hurt biblical fellowship in the American church. And it's cut many, off, many men off from uh, edifying relationships and loving accountability. And it weakens them spiritually and emotionally, whether they know it or not. So they become inferior Christians because they're not being sharpened by other men. What does the Word of God say? Iron sharpens iron, right? Iron sharpens iron. And so men need other men, whether they want to admit it or not. But the truth is, most of the men that I know do not have a good friend. Most of the men that I know do not have a good friend. And that's a a demonstration, not of masculinity. It's a demonstration, I believe, of how culture has shaped the way we live, shaped our masculinity, if you will, versus the biblical model. That's not the biblical model. That's not what we see in Scripture. When Jesus came, what did he do? You know, he gathered men around him. He built a brotherhood, right? And they walked with him, he walked with them. They talked together, they prayed together, they ministered together, they did these things together. So let me encourage you men to repudiate this myth of the self-reliant, lone ranger, male Christian. It is a myth and it is harmful. It will harm you spiritually, um, and emotionally. You know, in the, in the middle, ancient Middle East, really in, in the time of Abraham and even for hundreds and thousands of years afterwards, uh, it was criminal for a man to injure another man who had eaten bread with him. It was considered equivalent to lifting his hand against his own flesh and blood. Why? Because by dining together, They were considered brothers of the bread. That's the phrase they use. We are now brothers of the bread. You, by by sitting at my table, you are now my family. And by being a brother of the bread, you pledge to do each other no harm and to also actively promote each other's safety. Isn't that a great phrase? Brothers of the bread. And ironically, that's what Christian men already are, whether they know it or not. Because we are, we are all bound together by a common meal of the bread and wine, the Lord's Supper. Amen? And when we take that meal together, we are pledging to love one another, guard one another, and not harm one another. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Amen? Uh, Also, in the Middle East, amongst the Arabs, and of course, this is the the culture where we see so much biblical history. uh, One author says this, Turning to the Arabs, among whom are best reflected the immemorial usages of the East, 
We find that among them, a man's hospitality is largely the measure of his reputation. A closed fist, this is one of their sayings, a closed fist and a narrow heart and a miserly soul shall not hold rule over them. To be described as a man of much ashes is a coveted distinction. A man of much ashes. Because the heap of ashes by his tent indicated the extent of his cooking for the entertainment of his guests. Isn't that good? Today we'd have the man of many pizza boxes. They had another saying, the man whose dogs bark loudly is one held in high esteem. Why? Because the dogs were guiding the wanderer, the stranger, who might not otherwise find his dwelling. So you'd hear the dog and you'd follow the voice or the noise of the dogs. The sheik's tent always stands in the camp nearest the traveled way to offer first welcome to the approaching stranger. And that's why we see like Lot is in the gate, right? Abraham's at the tent. In other words, they are... They are uh, aware and looking for opportunities to invite others into their home. His superior position must be vindicated by his superior liberality. Let me say it again. His superior position must be vindicated by his superior liberality. In other words, the higher one went up, in the, the, the social status, if you will, the, the more it was required of you to demonstrate that you were hospitable. I love that. A man of much ashes and a brother of the bread. We see this masculine aspect of hospitality in the Lord I mean, in God himself, the Father and in the Son. Look at Luke 14. Here in Luke 14, we have a beautiful parable about the Great Supper, about a Great Supper. And we'll start in verse uh, 15. Now, when one of those who, who sat at the table with him, meaning with Jesus, heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God or eat dinner. Then he said to him, a certain man gave supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, (laughs) said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited, meaning those who were invited and didn't respond, shall taste of my supper. 
So the, the divine host here, of course, this is God the Father in the parable, right? Who's, who's inviting all to come to the feast that he's provided through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. That's what we, we um, remember in the Lord's Supper when we take the bread and the wine. That's, we wouldn't call that a feast, right? With a little wafer and a little cup of wine. But it's symbolic of the great feast that we will be experiencing if we've come to Jesus Christ. So here in this parable, the, the, the searching man is the father. He hosts a banquet. Um, and he invites all to come. And here, we, in this parable, we are the poor. We're the, we're the maimed. We're the blind. That's who we are in this parable. We are the ones on the outside. We were the ones that, we Gentiles, we were the ones who were not initially invited. The initial invitation went to the Jews. Jews first, right? And by and large, the Jewish people didn't respond. And so the father says, well, okay, let's invite the Gentiles. And out the invitation goes. Let's invite the alien. Let's invite the stranger into the covenant of promise. And so because the father is hospitable, he invites the strangers into his home, and not only into his home, but into his family. And so by breaking bread, if you will, with him, they, the, the, the stranger now becomes a family member. God's superior position as sovereign Lord is vindicated by his superior liberality as the supreme benefactor. But we see the same thing in the Son. Go to John 13, and we'll close with this. John 13, Jesus gives a really a beautiful illustration here of hospitality. In John chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, or some your versions may say during supper, the devil having already put it into the heart of Jesus Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, I mean, this is so amazing, you know. It's like when they're dining, which is, is the symbol of this, this brother of the bread thing, Right? The dining together, a pledge, it's, it's, it's a pledge of loyalty, is what it is. They're pledging loyalty to one another by, by dining. It's right when they're pledging loyalty that the devil moves in and, Judas, and turns Judas to betray him. The very opposite of what this dining together really symbolized. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, or all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So, ordinarily in those days, when someone would come to your home, you would have a, you would have a basin of water, and they would come in, and they could wash their own feet. 
Or you might have a servant who would attend to them. But as the host, you didn't usually wash their feet. That wasn't your job. Here, Jesus not only dines with them, he takes the role of the servant and actually washes the feet of his disciples. You talk about being hospitable, right? So Jesus here is the, the, the perfect man, the man's man, as well as the model for not only men, but women also. But he was the ultimate hospitable host or the gracious servant. He was the master and Lord. Amen? And yet, he was, he washes the disciples' feet. In other words, his superior position is vindicated by his superior hospitality. So in conclusion, let me just say this. Just as God has regard for us, and remember, in the biblical narrative, we are the stranger. We are the other. We are the ones outside of God's family. Just as God had regard for strangers, meaning us, so we should have regard for those we don't know. You know, when the, law, the, the young lawyer asked Jesus, he said, who is my neighbor? Jesus gave him an example of somebody who was in need. That's who your neighbor is, someone who's in need. So should you ask who is my stranger? He will show you a person you don't know. Indeed, the, the heart of hospitality is regard for the stranger. You can look around this room today and extend yourself to someone you don't know. Even in a, in a, uh, in a uh, group this size, there are people that you may have been seeing for weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe months, maybe even years, and you don't know. Reach out to them. Initiate. Just as God initiated our salvation, in other words, he invited us. He invited us to the feast. You likewise pursue hospitality or take initiative. Lastly, just as Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, so in order to practice hospitality, we do need to count the cost. Because there's a cost, right? It takes time. It might take some expense. It takes getting the house ready. Um, and yet we are called to, to do these things without complaint. Jesus, went, Jesus wept in Gethsemane, but it wasn't because he was complaining. He was enduring. Right? Jesus wasn't a whiner. Jesus was a winner. You know, I saw, I saw this lecture the other day by actually a non-Christian who was talking about the biblical Jesus. And he said, you know, we got this whole, he's like, this whole cultural picture of the, the meek and mild feminine Jesus. He's like, that's not the Jesus I see in the Bible. And this guy's not even a Christian. But he's right. When you read the Gospels, Jesus, man, he's tough. I mean, he is brave. He is bold. He's assertive when he needs to be, yet he can be kind. He can get down and wash people's feet. I mean, he is the perfect human being. It's amazing. But he wasn't a wimp. He wasn't a whiner. He didn't complain. He didn't moan and groan because life was hard. He's our exemplar. He is our 
pattern of the, of the Christian life, the Christ life, is to look at Jesus. Amen? You know, if you extend yourself to others and you are not uh, by others uh, rewarded or appreciated, remember this. Many whom the Father invited did not come. Many for whom Jesus died have trodden underfoot the Son of God. So, you, I, we, we may never be amply appreciated in this life, but Jesus has for you an eternal reward. For as you have done it unto the least of these, he says, you have done it unto me. And Jesus will repay you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you have a heart of hospitality. Father, that you have a heart for the stranger, the outcast, the poor, the lame, the blind. And that's who so many of us were. We were on the outside. We were aliens to the promises, strangers to the covenant and to the household of God. But now, Lord, through your initiative, your initiative, you have invited us and drawn us into your family. We thank you, Father, that you have made us your children. Not just your guests, but your children. We thank you, God, that we belong to your family. Lord, I pray for any here today that um, aren't in the family or maybe they're not sure. I ask that today, Lord, they might understand your great love for them. And that parable that I read earlier, Lord, is, is an invitation to them from you. Come to the feast. All things are now ready. God, through his son Jesus Christ, has died for your sins. And he has risen from the dead to conquer your guilt and your shame. He's now ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will give to you eternal life and the forgiveness of sins if you call upon his name. He is inviting you, not just to a banquet, but through that banquet, through the shed blood, the broken body of his son Jesus, he is inviting you to fellowship with him and to join his family. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, meaning Jesus, will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, will not be ashamed. For God so loved the world the world, that's how much hospitality God has, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might have life. God wants to give you eternal life and forgiveness of sins. The meal's been prepared. He's done all the work. He says, come. Come to Jesus in simple faith. Father, grant the gift of faith to those hearing today. Open their eyes and their hearts to know how much you love them. How much you desire them to come 
to the feast that you've made. And may they do so, Lord, for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.